Earth 2, a world much like our own, yet slightly different. There, young and old have banded together to battle evil. They are the heroes of World War II, as well as their sons and daughters, protégés and godchildren. Two True Freaks presents The Tales of the Justice Society of America! And welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America. My name is Michael Bailey, and as always, and I'm going to pretend we haven't been talking for like a half hour, I have my good friend, who just walked into the room, Scott Gardner. Hello! <laughs> How's it going? Well, that was a... <laughs> See? And that, that that's one of the things, that I'm going to take all these quotes now and create the Scott Gardner soundboard. So that if you ever can't make it to a show, I can actually just like you're like, hello, how's it going? Just plug yeah, that in. You only, you only need like three or four of them. You need hello, how's it going? You need me just snickering in the background. You need you know the occasional like, well, that's goddamn ridiculous, and that's pretty much it. That's me. There you go. Uh, I'm gonna be there one day. <laughs> Well, actually, to be fair, not that I really want to get into it, I'm there right now. Uh, I haven't been... You know, it's it's funny. I'm mad at, 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 at comics right now, but it's not like it was, you know, seven years ago, where it was like this seething, you know, like unfocused hatred. Now it's pretty focused, so I know what to avoid. So it's it's, it's nice. I, I can avoid what I don't like and just move on with life as, as if it's not happening. Uh, so, but no. Anyways, we are here because it is time to talk about another set of well, I wouldn't say golden age comics because they were written in the eighties. Though there are people <laughs> out there right now that probably think that is the golden age. In which case, right. you can go straight to hell. Uh, <laughs> I remember the eighties very well. So, yeah. I mean, you say you were a kid. You know, and that, that's a funny thing, Scott. Sometimes you say, that was a kid when I came out, and I do the math, and I'm like, dude, you were 23 years old. But I guess... Right. <laughs> I guess at a certain point, 23 is like, you're a kid. <laughs> so... <laughs> it's a it's a sliding time scale, much like comics itself. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> you have the Marvel sliding time scale of your life. There you go. That's it. <laughs> Everything seven years ago. So. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but before we get into the comics, we do have a handful of emails. Not as many emails as we have for the Crisis Show. Uh, oh my lord! I might add, I, I am blown away by the sheer amount of feedback we've gotten uh, for that show. 
Uh, I was telling Scott before we started recording that I don't think we got this much mail to the Tales inbox when we were like really on top of things back in 2010. Right. So I am I'm blown away and touched by the amount of uh, feedback we're getting on it. But we got some for Tales too, so we, we appreciate that. Uh, you want to keep the- it coming, guys? Keep it coming, because uh, as Mike and I were discussing just before we got started, uh, we will very likely have to have. A, uh, a, a crisis episode that is just covering <laughs> the feedback that we've got for it, but uh, I welcome that. I think that could be a lot of fun, so yeah, keep it coming. Uh, off the top of my head, I think this is the most feedback I- I've ever seen for any show I've ever participated in on, on one particular subject, and I think that's pretty awesome. It shows that there is great passion out there for crisis which i really yeah. like to see so i think that's great <laughs> somebody uh posted i forget who i don't know i think they posted to the tales group uh, a funny meme though for the crisis thing of a picture of padme from episode one and it said this is how the multiverse dies with thunderous applause <laughs> and, I, and i went hey and i went well actually that's kind of funny <laughs> so not as funny i like that I hadn't seen that one. Uh, you want to take the first one from Jose? I will. All right. So we've got one here from our good buddy Jose A. Rivera. And it's entitled, I love the uh, title on this one. It says, I'm back, a.k.a. Jose gets to act like a prick. <laughs> so Jose writes, all right, enough dicking around. I was the first email on this show, and I won the first contest you guys did. So this show isn't officially back until I've written an email. Uh, Everyone else is uh, minor pittance compared to me because what would a podcast be without me? Is that a little arrogant? Sure. (laughs) But I had a bad childhood. Not really, but you'd be surprised how often that works. (laughs) All jokes aside, allow me to say that I'm glad you guys are back. I haven't written in uh, in a while because, for some reason, I wasn't aware that Tales went to its own podcast page on iTunes. So for a long time, I thought you guys went on hiatus. Well, we did go on hiatus for a long time. Uh, When I saw new episodes posted, I thought I'd slept for too long and woke up in the future. You gotta admit, that would be cool if that happened. Actually, that'd be kind of frightening if that happened. (laughs) Right. Uh, I'm up to the emails episode before you guys start America vs. the JSA, but allow me to say... How much I missed hearing you guys talk about these comics. Oddly enough, the Generation Saga of Infinity Inc. sounds dull as hell in the beginning. Does anyone like Northwind? Uh, that's not the premise of a joke. I'm actually asking if anyone likes Northwind. Infinity Inc. has been a weird blind spot for me. I know about the characters, I know some of the stories, but I've never read the books. Between All Star Squadron and the Young All Stars, Infinity Inc was the one of the three books that didn't catch my attention. I don't know why. It might also have to do with money because I, uh, because growing up I was, you know, poor. <laughs> However, thanks to this show, I'm able to hear about the issues and should I continue to, en- uh, should I continue to enjoy them, I might have to hunt, down, uh, hunt them down in 50 cent and dollar bins at the next convention. I hope to send more emails and get back into the habit as I've really missed you guys. Oh, we've really missed you as well, dude. Thanks, and keep up the good work. And again, that's from Jose A. Rivera, a.k.a. the first email read aloud on the show. The rest of you can suck it. (laughs) I like that one. 
Now it feels like we are officially back. Now it does. I, I was. <laughs> I'm. I'm just amazed at the Trentus Magnus levels of arrogance in the uh, in the opening <laughs> to that to that email. That's uh, that's pretty hardcore. So. <laughs> Well, I, I just want to, you know, addressing the, the email itself, uh, Jose, I would say that, um, you know, last episode's issue of Infinity Inc., and I'm going to make a prediction that probably this episode's issue of Infinity Inc., probably not going to give you a lot of incentive to pick up the, yeah. <laughs> the back issues out of the 50 cent bin. However... I'm. I still maintain that the series is good. Um, we're, we're going to see if that bears out as we continue forward. But my memories of the series was that I really, you know, I really enjoyed it uh, first time around and everything. Um, so we'll we'll see if that holds up as we get deeper and deeper into it. Um, however, you know, to Mike's point, you know, Mike has often said that that Infinity Inc. is that book that never really recovered from. Uh, you know what happens to Earth too after Crisis on Infinite Earths, and that is very true as well. It it felt to me like although they did have some exciting stories and we get some really good characters and some interesting things happen at the same rate, it it always did feel like they couldn't quite get their feet again. You know, I, so that's I'm starting to wonder if they ever had feet in the first place. With this. Well, well, yeah, you know that's that's you know that's very true as well, um, but. You can find these in the back issues. Yeah. Uh, you know, you you had mentioned fifty cent and dollar bins. Personally, there's not a lot of issues of this series I'd pay a buck for in back issue bins. But if you <laughs> find them in the fifty cent bins, you know, by all means. I know that the issue that we covered last time and the one that we're covering this time, I see these two issues in the fifty cent bin all the time, and I think that's going to become apparent why when we get into our coverage of uh, of this particular issue. But Chroma was not the hottest new character find no. of the 80s. No, he was not. <laughs> Next up, we have one from Bradley Null. Too much time on my hands. Uh, and now I'm singing that in my head. Um, <laughs> hey, I was just wondering when you guys get far enough along, will you be covering the Sandman issues with Hector and Lyda Hall? I consider the appearance of the Halls to be 100% canon, and although you don't strike me as Vertigo guys... What happens to the two of them does affect the future. Indeed, the underrated near-perfect death of the Halls forced by Infinite Crisis is tied to this. It also means the King of Dreams is the grandson of Wonder Woman, which is a thought I love. Listening to From Crisis to Crisis reminded me at the end of Zero Hour, the universe is restored by having Damage's son, the Golden Age Damage, son of the Golden Age Adam, start the Big Bang. This means that from Zero Hour forward, the entire DC universe is reborn from the JSA. Reading the above paragraphs and checking cover dates. The King of Stories was reborn of the JSA. At the same time, the DC Universe was physically reborn of the JSA. Mind somewhat blown, but that might explain why I loved this era so much. Like the subject said, too much time on my hands. Maybe I should start a podcast, Reverend Null. So I like that. I, that never occurred to me before, but I, I like that sentiment a lot. Yeah. I don't know if we'll be covering those, though. And it's not that, you know, we're not Vertigo guys, because, strictly speaking, the first, like, those issues of Sandman were not Vertigo titles, because Vertigo didn't exist as an imprint until, like, 1993. So, but, uh, more to the point, it's just, it's so tertiary to the JSA. 
don't know. Uh, yeah, I, you know, I'm I'm not sure how to how to feel about that because I myself have not read them, but I do know that they are referenced when we get to the JSA series of the nineties. Because uh, I can remember them being referred back to in you know in the issues because eventually uh, Hector and Lyda become part of that series for a time. So yeah, because D- Hector becomes he becomes Doctor Fate eventually. Yes, doesn't he, he does. Yeah, and so I remember them referring back to things that happened during the Sandman issues. But having never read them myself, I I don't know how. Uh, irrelevant or tertiary they, they might happen to be. So I don't know. That'd be interesting. I, I guess it's going to be one of those just we'll have to wait and see kind of things at this point because, you know, it, it feels terribly far down the line. It Maybe it's not really, but at the moment it feels like, it, you know, uh, like it, that's it, years it, down the line. It's so. a good six years after this right? Uh, from the books we're reading right now because my sister, five or six years, I guess I should say, my sister read Sandman. For a very brief period, because everyone did in the '90s, even non-comic right. book people picked up the Sandman, and right. I read her issues, and I remember seeing uh, Hector becomes the '70s Sandman in right. that title, right? And yeah, even has the two like little sidekicks that that character had, so it, it's kind of weird. It was weird to me because I only knew those through Who's Who, so I was familiar with it. And then years later, when they brought those, you know, when they brought Lyda and Hector back, essentially, uh, it was kind of strange that I was like, "Oh, that's that's really weird that they're drawing." Because Vertigo, at one point, <laughs> except for one instance, at one point, Vertigo and DC, those characters did not cross over at all. That that was that was off limits. You know, right, and they broke that rule with Hal Jordan's funeral uh, in Green Lantern '81 from 1996 because Sandman, um, because excuse me, because Swamp Thing and John Constantine show up. But it, it, you know, it, it was just one of those unspoken things. So it was really weird for them to start bringing Vertigo concepts over. But I think in terms of JSA, you really don't need to read those because they tell you everything you need to know. I don't think we would get anything out of reading them that what they explain in the issues already tells us, essentially. See, that was kind of my feeling about it as well. I was trying to remember, you you tickled my brain when you said something about the 70s Sandman, and I'm like, doesn't he pop up in Infinity Inc.? So I I did a quick search here of my cover gallery, and uh, sure enough, yeah, he pops up, he's on the cover of issue 49. Now, I can't remember for the life of me what the hell he has to do with Infinity Inc., Uh, but I know he does pop up eventually. I do, I remember that, it was, it was interesting. Okay. <laughs> well, let's That's just say inter- let's just say Hector Hall goes through some interesting changes towards the end right. of the series. <laughs> right, yeah. Alright. Well, we got another one here. Let's see. This one is entitled Just Getting Started. Have really enjoyed the first three episodes, and this is from Carl uh, Wickstrom. It says, Hi guys. Uh, I just discovered your podcast about a week ago and I'm enjoying listening on my rather short commutes. I am a DC Silver Age kid as opposed to you Bronze Age whippersnappers. 
And since reading comics wasn't cool when I uh, got to junior high, I totally missed the Bronze Age. Oh, that's sad. It says, however, I remember the first Earth 2 and Earth 3 stories when I was a kid. I decided it didn't matter that reading comics was not cool right after the crisis, the first one, but I still managed to grab back, uh, back bin copies, so I still have the set which I read, uh, which I read rather back in the late 80s. I noticed that you are now entering the crisis in your current podcast. I will try to have uh, the discipline to wait until I've listened to all of the other episodes. Oh, good lord, that's <laughs> that's going to take a while. Uh, following along in the complete set of all star comics uh, that I got through various sources before getting to your takes on the crisis. It was uh, much, much less expensive to get all, the All-Star set uh, than the sets of Silver Age comics I have collected in recent years. Yep, I, I continue to find All-Star Squadron um, in 50-cent bins, yeah. which on the one hand makes me really happy because that means it's accessible to people, you know, for cheap. But then, you know, every time I see something that I really love in the 50-cent bin... It always makes me a little bit sad too, because you know, it, 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 you know it's it's that split emotion. It's like I'm glad this is cheap and accessible, but oh, I love this so much. Why is it only worth fifty cents to people? You know, it, it's weird. But you know, it's funny that that he says that uh, you know the All Star comics are less expensive than Silver Age books. I wonder if they're still crazy expensive. Because remember, right around the time of Infinite Crisis. When the first appearance of Power Girl went through the freaking roof, uh, back issue right, was. right. Well, you know, you you just yeah. He he said All Star Comics here, and I thought he means All Star Squadron. I I totally forgotten that we started with All Star Comics. So yeah. yes, uh, yeah. But no, I know exactly what you mean because uh, I used to have um, two or three copies. Of what, what issue is that? Is that 57? 58, I think. 58. Yeah. 57, 58. Um, the one with the first Power Girl. Well, it was basically, it was the revival issue of All Star Comics. And I slapped one, one up on eBay. This was when I was first getting into eBay years ago. Mm-hmm. And I slapped one up. I think I put it up for a buck. And that thing went... I can't remember what I got for it now, but I remember being completely blown away by how much money I got out of it at the time not realizing what a hot back issue that was. So I have to amend what I said then because I thought he was talking about All-Star Squadron. All-Star Squadron I do find in 50-cent bins. Um, All-Star Comics, the the revival issues, not so much anymore. Every once in a while I'll find like a beat-up one. Yeah. But the uh, they seem to be climbing. The, the last few times I've been to conventions, if I found any issues at all, they're usually in... At the cheapest, they're usually maybe two dollars, but usually they're they're significantly higher than that. Um, and I think there's a number of factors. I think it's age. Um, I think it's the people that worked on the titles. You, mm-hmm. know, you had Joe Staten and and the different guys. But also, I, I think it's you know it, it's just it's hitting that sweet spot. You know, for a lot of yeah, I I was lucky enough you know, in around 1997. At the uh, the shop that I actually go to now on a regular basis, he had the entire All Star Comics run, and oh, wow. they were like you know two bucks a piece, and I'd always wanted to read them, so I just I just snapped them up, and I'm so glad I did that 
because because uh, later on it would have been like nigh impossible. Now, to be fair, you can pick up the uh, what are they those called? Why can't I remember what the DC version of the essentials are called? This is pissing. showcase. Yeah, they because uh, I was actually at a comic shop this past weekend and. Right next to each other was the showcased All-Star Comics that has basically everything that's in those two trade paperbacks that they released about ten years ago. I remember the trades. I didn't know that they had done those in a showcase edition. it's all in one showcase, and like the first 14 issues of All-Star Squadron are in a showcase. Yeah, that that I did know about, because I think we mentioned that in the show when that was about to happen, but... If memory serves, back when in our earliest issues, or you know, earliest episodes rather, when we were covering these early issues, had that stuff been reprinted yet? Because I don't think it had. The only it, the All Star Comics stuff had in those two trades because uh, okay, we constant, right. I was constantly referencing them. Uh, when, we, we, <laughs> back when we could do that, at the end of every episode, we'd be like, "You can find this issue in blah blah right. blah trade." So, right, uh, and. I, I eventually sold those because I have the comics, and I actually got... Uh, I forget who I sold those to, but it actually ended up going for a pretty decent price, I think. Uh, not that I was trying to sell them for profit. Right. I was just trying to get shelf space, because good God in heaven, trades take up a lot of space. Not as much as comics, right? Uh, I might add, but still. Um, no, but, but I guess at this point, Silver Age comics are, are starting to get that you know, those crazy prices as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, where books from the 70s are now going for 20-some-odd dollars a piece, uh, depending, you know, and up, depending on what it is. I mean, I don't even want to think... I don't even want to think about trying to track down a copy of Hulk 181 at this point. <laughs> you know. Well, it's just, you know, it, it's scary and, and a little bit depressing to think about, but, you know, books like this are now hitting 40 years old. Mm-hmm. And that generally is that spot, you know, between 30 and 40 years is when they go from, you know, easily accessible and, and fairly cheap to all this, all of a sudden, sometimes it seems like it's overnight, all of a sudden, wow, it's hard to find these. And when you do, they're, they're kind of expensive. So, yeah, I'm glad I got mine when I got mine. That's all I got to say. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, he continues here that Carl continues he says I want to respond to the bad press the DC subscription service has gotten from you guys Ooh, th- see he's testing my brain muscle because this is, if he's just at the first three episodes hell I don't remember what we said three episodes ago let alone you know way back when but evidently we, we said some bad things he says I subscribe uh, from DC for about five years 2009 to 2013 yes you are right that the issues sometimes arrived mangled but if you get on the subscription website and tell them it is messed up they will send you another issue in a manila envelope which uh, usually arrives intact my biggest problem with the subscription service was that the issues arrived about six weeks behind and if there was a breakthrough event and a special issue or miniseries the comic or comics would be uh, hard to find by the time I knew about it. So I switched to an online subscription service, which gave me a heads up on specials and events and arrived box. So the issues were always pristine. I finally quit buying new comics altogether last year as I have run out of storage space, about 8,000 comics. He says, I have uh, more than enough to read in my nerdy retirement in a few years. (laughs) Now I I just want to address this real quick. Um, 
again, not remembering what we said uh, in those episodes, I'm guessing that I probably told a story about when I was a kid because I only subscribed a brief uh, to DC very briefly. This would have been this was probably mid eighties. I'm guessing because mm-hmm. I remember I still lived with my folks. I hadn't graduated high school yet, so yeah, this this would be about mid eighties. And we lived, for a time, we lived very rural, um, where comics just were not readily accessible. I mean, you, you had to take a trip into town, essentially, to, to go anywhere that would sell comics. So, for a time... <laughs> for some reason, I'm, like, picturing, like, the beginning to the Little House on the Prairie, for some almost. reason. <laughs> almost! But, you know, just in order to make sure, because for some reason... Uh, you know, DC was, you know, just always took second place on the racks in the places that I would go to buy comics, whether it was Carthage, where I grew up, or Watertown, you know, which was the, you know, city, and I say that in air quotes, uh, that was closest to us. DCs were always the ones that were, you know, they were spotty. You know, the Marvel titles, you could usually get, you know, every subsequent issue and not too many holes, but the DCs were so spotty. And I got really into Batman. And this was way before Batman was cool to anybody else. This was way before, you know, Tim Burton and and all that. So I was really into Batman and I didn't want to miss issues. So I subscribed to it. And I subscribed for, I think, just a year. And it was crap, man. I mean, they just, they did. They came mangled all the time. They took no care with them at all. They were just in in a simple, um... Like a like a plastic, not like a poly bag or anything. It was just like a plastic, you know, like you receive junk mail in one of those type of plastic things, with uh, with a little what they called a backer board, which really was nothing at all. You know, behind it was just to kind of sort of maybe keep it stiff, but it never worked. It didn't protect the book in any way. And after that one year, I, I dropped the subscription service. I, it just wasn't worth it to me. But I mean. You know, Carl, you're talking about just a couple of years ago, you know, 2009 to 2013. I'm sure it's a very different world now because, you know, it says here, you know, you can go to the subscription website and let them know if you get an issue that's banged up or what, and they'll just replace it. Well, back then, I mean, I guess I could have written to them to let them know. But again, you know, you're talking about, you know, dealing with snail mail and are they going to get it and are they going to do anything about it when they do get the complaint? And it just, it was such a nightmare. I, I only did it just the one year and then and dropped it after that. I mean, I mean, to be fair, the only reason I have certain issues of Justice League in the early 100s uh, is because they came into my shop with the subscription fold, uh, which, right. which is an actual grading term. Right, uh, where they were bent in half and shoved into a shoved into a mailbox. Now mm-hmm. I don't really care about that because the book is in good shape otherwise, and you really kind of have to stare on some of the books to see the crease. But it's, it's just one of those things where I, I, you know, I don't I don't think the subscription people in the seventies and eighties. I don't want to say they don't they didn't give a crap because I'm sure if you had a problem, they had a resolution process. But it's so easy. To get in touch with people now because it's all, you know, email makes it a lot easier. I mean, I've I've had certain, like, you know, people have nightmares dealing with computers. I had to, to work with Dell to fix my father-in-law's computer, and it was an incredibly easy process. Like, I was surprised. I was expecting it to be this nightmare where I was going to be on hold for 60 years. 
And, you know, it's just like suddenly I look around the night from Last Crusade is sitting there going, you have chosen poorly. I mean, it's <laughs> right. Just, uh, so I just I, I I I get what he's saying, and and I and I appreciate the 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 insight into what subscribing in the modern era is like because I don't even think of that anymore. Because <laughs> you can mail order so much stuff, and there's so many services vying for your attention. You know, you know, and you know, like you know, outside of DCBS, which I think is arguably the biggest of the of the services now, which you know. All things being equal, while I like my local comic shop, the idea of getting all the books I want just delivered to me once a month is really appealing to me at this point. Right. So it's just like, oh, I get it all at once and I can just sit there and read it. I don't have to drive anywhere. You know, because I love the hunt. You you know, you recently went on a scavenger hunt yourself. And mm-hmm. I went to a one-day comic show. But because of you know me getting a tablet it's it's so weird now that i can't tell you how many times last weekend that i sorted through a bunch of issues had them out looked at them and you know i have these digitally it'd be a lot easier to read them there and they don't take up any room put it back (laughs) so that yeah that's been happening to me more and more often lately it really has well, let me ask you, too, because I, I know that for me this would have been, at this time we're talking about in the mid-80s, this would have been a consideration. These days, does condition of the book affect your affect you that much like maybe it would have you know, way back when? Because I find condition doesn't really affect me much anymore. It, it, it really... I don't want something that's falling apart. Right. But... If it's got some nicks, or if it's not in pristine condition, especially it depends on the age of the book. Like if, like if I find a Silver Age book and the cover's still on, I'm like, hey, hey, this is great because yep. some of those are just, you know, I believe uh, you really need to submit to the grading people, WTS, uh, or whip to shit as an official whip to shit as, as yes. an official grading thing. So. Uh, but no, I, I, I really it, I really don't. I mean, I, I have a thing against water damage, but again, it depends on how much water damage there is. If there's just like a crinkle in the middle of the book, and that's it, and it's in good shape otherwise, I'm good to go. Uh, you know what I found that really works well on water damage books, though? Um, and, I, and I know this because this recently happened to me. Um, I'm on vacation right now as we record this, so... So one of the things I, I've been wanting to do for, God, it's been forever, and I just hadn't had time to do it. But now that I'm on vacation, I had time to do it, was to put all of my, the books, I had this massive stack of comics that I have read over the past, I don't know, probably two or three years, that has just been sitting there waiting to be properly filed into my comic collection. And my boxes are just stacked on top of each other. At this point, they're four. Some of them are five deep. And it's just a pain in the nuts to have to go through all that stuff to put things in order to put things back in the boxes. Because I have to shift everything, if you know what I mean. Yes. So, but I finally decided I was going to do that. So I took a day, and, and that's all I did for that day. I put some podcasts on in the background, and I just went to work filing my comics and, and putting everything away. And... I got about three-fourths of the way into the project, and I dug down to the bottom of one of the stacks of of boxes, pulled out that bottom box, and underneath that bottom box was a comic. 
And I was like, what the hell is this doing here? And then I remembered that it was a badly water-damaged issue that I had that I had put there in the hopes that maybe I could flatten it out properly. And I'd completely forgotten. So God only knows how long it's been there, probably since we moved into the house. (laughs) And it's in great shape. It has sat there for so long and had that pressure of four totally filled comic boxes on top of it for all this time that it is perfectly flat and normal like a regular comic now. So that was really nice. It, it, it's 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 interesting that you mentioned that because a month or two back I was at the comic shop and every once in a while I'll get into a conversation with the owner and I and I, I learn interesting things about the behind the scenes of, of, of buying comics on the secondary market that, you know, as a consumer maybe you just don't know about. And right. he recently picked up, at that point recently, picked up a collection of Bronze Age books. And we're talking, like, first appearance of Rachel Ghoul, first, you know, Green Lantern, Green Arrow, number 76, you know, these types of things. But they had sat in a basement in Georgia for oh. 20 years, so they were a little curled. He's got a guy that has some kind of press that can flatten them out. Oh, wow. So there's something out there that can can take it it doesn't exactly make it perfect but it takes that curl out of it that books get um you know we keep talking about it we really got to do the nuts and bolts of collecting thing oh absolutely Absolutely. we've been talking about it for five years but still (laughs) we talked about doing crisis for five years and here we are so I think once we get crisis out of the way, I think you and I both have a number of of back burner projects that we that we want to get to because I know we've talked about that. We've talked about generations, generations forever. So yeah, I think once crisis is is out of the way, we can uh, we can address some of those other projects. But yeah, that's one I would love to do. I really would give away all our best secrets mm-hmm. <laughs> and then curse them as they outbid us on eBay. Right. <laughs> well, uh, Carl wraps up his email here. He says, Meanwhile, I am going to continue to read and follow along with you. I am doing about three episodes a week, so in about 30 weeks I should be caught up. I am co- confident that the journey will be enjoyable. Thanks for your continued efforts to make my ride more enjoyable. So just remember, Carl, 10 and 2, eyes on the road, all that sort of thing. Be safe out there. Don't laugh too hard. Don't don't swerve off the road. And if you do hit anybody, uh, you know, just just keep going. It's not us. <laughs> it's not our fault. <laughs> <laughs> no, that would be funny if somebody did like a PSA where it had, you know, like those anti-texting PSAs where they show the kids right. texting. Like a guy driving along, listening to us, and you say something, and he's just laughing, and then the truck comes and hits him. <laughs> <laughs> Why are we laughing about that? That's terrible. What is wrong with me? <laughs> You've been asking yourself that question for five years. Yes, I have. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with him? <laughs> well, to uh, to quote our good friend Andy Leyland, I think we should knock it on the head there. Yep. For emails. Take a quick break, and when we come back, Scott... Scott drew the long straw this time out. <laughs> <laughs> And he's going to talk about All-Star Squadron number 46. Wow. We're almost to 50, dude. Yes. Superman. Captain Marvel. Batman. 
It is 1985. Robin of Earth 2. Sergeant Rock. The Legion of Superheroes. This is the most eagerly awaited comic book event in 50 years. Tommy Tomorrow. Jonah Hex. Commandy. It will one day be called the greatest comic book event of all time. Swamp Thing. Wonder Woman. The New Teen Titans. The Haunted Tank. Infinity Incorporated. Worlds will live. Green Arrow. Worlds will die. Supergirl. The Flash. And that is only the beginning. The Justice League of America. The All-Star Squadron. The Huntress. Arion. The Metal Man. Firestorm. The Nuclear Man. The Outsiders. Green Lantern. The Blue Beetle. The Crime Syndicate. Warlord. The Guardians of the Universe. Tales of the Justice Society of America proudly presents... And many, many more. Crisis on Infinite Earths. The DC Universe will never be the same. Coming January only at twotruefreaks.com. Okay, Bill, are we ready? Sure, Paul. Oh, wait. Be right back. I need my Avengers omnibus. Uh, Where did I put that thing? While Bill looks for that, let me tell you about our new endeavor. Two True Freaks has grown, and Back to the Bins is growing with it. I, Paul Spataro, along with Bill Robinson and Scott Gardner... Just say his name three times in an email, and he'll appear in your show. Hey, how's it going? Ah, sorry, sorry. I forgot I had a Scott Gardner life model decoy in here. Be right there. Ow! Ow, who put Cap Shield there? <laughs> anyway... We're looking to showcase various characters, storylines, issues, or whatever strikes our fancy from the world of the Avengers. Hey, Ben, move that funny-looking hammer, would you? It's it's on that book, and I can't move it. Sure thing, Dad. Where do you want it? Uh, over there somewhere. No! no! Watch out for the repulsor! No! Ah! Oh! Ah! Ah! Don't tell your mother. We like to call it Avengers Spotlight. I thought it was going to be called Old Avengers Never Die, They Just Get Reassembled and Sent to Another Earth. What? Too wordy? Who knows what we'll cover, and who might stop by? So join us for the Avengers Spotlight, where we'll look at Earth's greatest heroes and some of comics' greatest stories, such as the Korvac Saga, Acts of Vengeance, the Kree Skrull War, and, oh, for the love of Christ, who the hell put the Celestial Madonna Saga on this list? Huh. I found a use for that life model decoy after all. Okay, found it. We ready? Hey, wait a minute. This is the book of the Vashanti. <sighs> Forget it. See you soon, everybody. My favorite Avengers are D-Man and Green Lantern. Say goodnight, Scott. Goodnight, Scott. Welcome back to Tales of the Justice Society of America, number 93, and we're going to go ahead and we're going to dive into our first book here. This is All-Star Squadron, number 46. This is the June 1985 cover-dated issue. This was on sale on the racks March 28th, 1985, so a solid 30 years ago at this point. Cover on this one is by Arvel M. Jones and Pablo Marcus, who also uh, do the interior art. 
it features a cover I really, really like. While it is a super busy cover, I actually really dig this one quite a bit. It is large and in charge in the foreground. You've got Baron Blitzkrieg. He's got Kirby Crackle all around him. He's glowing like orange and gold color. He's got beams shooting out of his eyes. It's really cool. And in the background, you've got Johnny Quick and the Flash rushing in. You've got Liberty Bell swinging in on a rope. And you've got Hawkgirl in the background just kind of having this stunned expression on her face. I really love this cover. And the cover copy says, Baron Blitzkrieg pulls out all the stops. Plus, Dr. Fate pinup by Dan Jurgens. So, pretty cool cover. All right, Philadelphia, It Tolls for Thee is the name of our story. Roy Thomas is the writer slash editor. Arvel Jones, penciler. Pablo Marcus, embellisher. Dan Thomas, co-plotter. Gene D'Angelo colorist Cody is the letter and the quote for this issue is and therefore never send to know for whom the bell tolls and this is by John Dunn circa uh, 1623 in the Parisphere headquarters of the illustrious all-star squadron Hawkman fill-in chairman uh, recaps last issue in which Baron Blitzkrieg and Zyklon cost America two Liberty Bells. One, the costume her- uh, the costumed heroine, and the other, the actual American icon. Johnny Quick, feeling mighty low about the death of Bell's father figure, Tom Revere, splits before being officially dismissed. Tarantula, meanwhile, is concerned about his sorta girlfriend, Firebrand, who just lost her own father two issues back. The group forms plans to find Bell, both of them, and learn just what the heck a blind Nazi supervillain wants with them in the first place, or wants with the proper Liberty Bell, the real one, the one that dings. And Hawkgirl uh, agrees to check in on Libby Lawrence. Now, Libby Lawrence, of course, is Liberty Bell and her civilian identity. Uh, but Johnny Quick gets there first and finds his gal pal about to put the smackdown on Zwerg, Blitzkrieg's little buddy, in an effort to learn the location of the Baron. And it just occurs to me that uh, I didn't say where he gets to. This is the hospital, of course. Zwerg got, Zwerg got hurt in the last issue, so Johnny goes to the hospital, and that's where he finds uh, Liberty Bell threatening him. Uh, Johnny Quick arrives just in time to stop Libby, and at first defends Zwerg from her, but the dwarf proves to be such a little shit that Johnny quickly threatens to walk out and, le- uh, and let Libby have her way with him if he doesn't cooperate. So Zwerg does, and he recaps the Baron's exploits since essentially the beginning of this series, and explains how he was struck by, uh, he was struck rather, quote-unquote, hysterically blind, whatever the hell that means, uh, a while back, and he was... Uh, psychically manipulating uh, steel when this happened he also spills the baron's location but before they can act uh, johnny hears a disturbance outside the hospital which requires his attention it was a traffic accident but in attending to it he accidentally knocks himself out Libby Lawrence, however, unaware of this, decides 10 pages is long enough to fulfill her vow never to again become uh, Liberty <laughs> Bell and goes into action <laughs> and goes into action with Hot Girl. Uh, now, where Hot Girl came from isn't made clear during this portion. She just kind of shows up and Libby Lawrence rides her into action, which is just... <laughs> Cue the flash yeah. pic. Yeah, exactly. 
They arrive at a church in Philadelphia where Zyklon is attempting to employ the other Liberty Bell to cure the Baron's psychological blindness through the miracles of comic book science. Lots of good fighting action is had in which uh, Liberty Bell and Hawk Girl each take turns battling Zyklon and the other one, uh, trying to disable his gadgets while unknownst to them, Johnny Quick and the Flash race to the scene. Eventually, Zyklon and Hawk Girl collide and knock each other out. Liberty Bell attempts to free the Baron against his wishes from Zyklon's machine, and just as the male heroes are about to arrive at last, lightning strikes the clock tower. Bell and the Baron are bathed in weird energies. The Baron's sight is restored. He bursts free of his bonds, uh, the ones that were keeping him secured to Zyklon's machine, and in doing so, dislodges the Liberty Bell that was suspended high above. It falls, headed straight for the other Liberty Bell. It's about to crush her, just like in her dream last issue of Miss Liberty, when suddenly she raises her hand and staves off death by the use of sound energy that she's manipulating from within her. Uh, turning, she flings the bell at Blitzkrieg with her new sonic pulse power and brings him down. Then she blasts Zyklon into the arms of the Flash and Johnny Quick that have just arrived. Uh, Quick is only too happy to belt the Nazi speedster a good one. Bell, Johnny, and the Flash confer, giving the villains just enough time to conveniently escape. Way too conveniently, I might add, and uh, I'm sure we'll be discussing this uh, very shortly. All's well that ends well, with Libby telling Hot Girl, I guess you're not such a bitch after all, deciding to continue being Liberty Bell and locking lips with Johnny Quick. The end. Very nice, concise. Uh... So, <laughs> I tried to keep this one shorter because my, uh, my synopsis for Crisis number three, uh, I just felt was uh, was epic length. So I was trying to be a little more concise. Yeah, I'm, I'm having similar things with uh, mine for Crisis four. <laughs> um, so we're we're gonna see how that works out. So historical notes this time around for All Star Squadron number forty six. Read as the fictitious New York Eagle, read by Hawkman takes its name from uh, a once-famous actual newspaper, the Brooklyn Eagle. That's at the beginning of the issue. Hawk, uh, Hawkman is holding up the newspaper. When Liberty Bell yells to Zy- uh Oh, it's misspelled here. It says Zycon. It's actually Zyklon, right, with an L? Yeah, it's misspelled here. Don't touch that dial. She's quoting a popular catchphrase of the day, which meant not to touch the dial of one's radio. For example, don't touch the station because you're about to hear something great. After this adventure, Belle tells Hot Girl she'll never think of her as just a, quote-unquote, a debutante with wings. Which is essentially what I said. I guess you're not such a bitch after all. <laughs> Uh, the letters page contains letters on the recent limited series America vs. the Justice Society. And newcomer Dan Jurgens drew, uh, drew a full-page Dr. Fate pinup for this issue. And that's it. That's all the notes we have on this one from the, uh, the All-Star Companion Volume 2. So what do you have for notes, Mike? Um, despite being very yellow, I do like this cover. Uh, it, it, the uh, the characters kind of break up the color scheme of it, but it's it's really cool. It's uh, 
you're, <laughs> I never thought about the Kirby Crackle until you mentioned it, but that is definitely serious mm-hmm. Kirby Crackle. Uh, not the group, the the uh, the effect uh, on the page. Why was there never a, a breakfast cereal called Kirby Crackle? Oh, dude, that, it'd be like, no, I got it. You have fruit-flavored Rice Krispies with marshmallows. That works. Yeah. And then as, that, the, as the secret thing in the box, it would be a, a packet of uh, a Pop Rocks. Yeah. <laughs> with a free thing for soda to explode your stomach. <laughs> That's um, a myth. I know it's a myth. <laughs> then again, people still kind of screwed screw up uh, that commercial because it's the whole Mikey died from Pop Rocks. And right. Soda. Uh, I, I just want to say this again because my name is Michael. So when you have a name like that that is associated with a famous commercial, you hear about it your entire freaking life. Uh, Mikey liking Life cereal was a surprise because he didn't like anything. Right. So all these people that are like, Mikey will eat anything, that's not the point of the commercial and PSA. Uh, page one, on one hand, I absolutely love this shot of Hawkman. It is epic. On the other hand, Carter, put on a goddamn shirt. Oh my Brian god, my out. first note is, put on a shirt! <laughs> <laughs> oh my god, we are so in sync, that's scary, dude. <laughs> Uh, on the opposite page, though, is a black and white uh, ad for the Hunger Dogs graphic novel, mm-hmm. which I saw at the show last week, last weekend, but didn't feel like paying. The lowest I saw it for was fifty dollars. Holy crap! Are you serious? Yeah, yeah I'm. I'm serious. Have you ever read so, that? No. I actually picked that up off the shelf at a Walden Books, thumbed through it, and put it back. And if I'd have known that one day it'd be worth fifty bucks, I think I'd have gone ahead and made the purchase. <laughs> Holy shit! Uh, pages two and three. I like this two-page spread. I I, I I often like the like this the two-page spread of like the people at, in the meeting hall, mm-hmm. and I like the fact that Green Lantern is just randomly making himself some tea or coffee or something with his ring. <laughs> Uh, he's not really doing anything else, and that's odd for a Roy Thomas page because usually everybody has a line. So right, yeah. Uh, page four. I'd like to think that I'd like to thank GL asking the question we were all thinking. There's still one thing that bothers me about this whole business. Didn't Johnny say that Baron Blitzkrieg is blind? What's a blind man doing stealing the Liberty Bell? Thank you. Yeah, never addressed in the issue either. Uh, okay, page five. I, I, maybe I missed something, but Johnny has this thought. Uh, after uh, Shira goes, I'll look in on Libby, make sure she's okay. Good idea, Shira. And Johnny thinks, Nope, Hawk, bad idea. Your little lady, your little lady bird rubs a lot of people's feathers the wrong way, including Libby's. Oh well, nobody's perfect. Where the hell did this come yeah, from? Yeah, this is kind of out of left field. Like, it is. It, 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 here's the bad thing about it is that if it was something that. Thomas was trying to establish that people didn't like her, then that would have been fine. But it's resolved within the same issue. Mm -hmm. So it feels like characterization for just the sake of of making drama, and it doesn't feel organic or real in any sense of the word. Well, you know, well, the thing is also that made about her, uh, you know, arguably the, the thing that makes people not like her is the whole debutante thing. Isn't that like half the heroines? And and, uh, and and half the heroes. And half the heroes, yeah. A lot of them are, are, are um, what do you call it? Um, I'm trying to think of the word I want to Rich. use. But, well, you know, yeah, they're 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 the, um, you know, the playboy, the, 
I can't think of the word I want to use, but you know, kind of the the, the lazy playboy type of thing. You know, yeah. they, they're bored with life, so they they put on a costume and a mask to go and have a you know some, to bring some spice and adventure to the. So they're all kind of the same. You know, not every one of them, but many of them, that's kind of their thing. So why are they singling her out? Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense, I didn't think. I mean, if they established from, like, you know, earlier in the series that Liberty Bell, who's a working girl, not that kind of working girl, but, <laughs> uh, you know, she's got a job, she's a, she's a radio personality, you know, and she goes out there and does the tough assignments... You know, you could kind of see somebody like that looking at a rich woman, you know, putting on a mask and, and helping it. And basically putting forth the theory or, or the misguided theory that Hawkgirl is just, she just puts it on and, and is silly just, you know, just to be a tag along with her boyfriend, essentially. Right. But they never play it that way. Hawkgirl is a big part of this series in the beginning. Mm-hmm. You know, she's right there with them, you know, more so than Hawkman sometimes. So... This it's it just it felt so weird. Like when I read it, I, I read it, I stopped, and I was just like, "That doesn't seem right." So, uh, page seven, we get good cop bad. Page seven and eight, really, we get good cop bad cop uh, superhero style <laughs> with uh, with Baron Blitzkrieg's hetero life mate uh, Zwerg, who sells Zwerg out in like a hurry. By the way, I might add, he's he's kind of pissed that Zwerg dumped him for for uh, for Zyklon. <laughs> um, and again, let the slash fiction begin. Page eight. I like that Roy Thomas is giving us a bunch of exposition about what happened in previous issues, but he's framing it that while we know all this stuff, Johnny is finding it out for the first time. So it makes sense to say it out loud, right? In this context. So not only does it catch up the character, it the the readers who may not be familiar with the early issues, it also like catches up the characters on it, and I really liked that. Uh, on page eleven, Libby says she is going to put paid to Liberty Bell once the Baron's plans are stopped. So I looked it up, and apparently, put paid means to terminate, to cancel, or to stop something once and for all. It can also mean to mark a bill as paid. Right. Uh, and everything I dug up says that this was mainly a UK or New Zealand idiom. So, uh, but I, I saw that. I'm like, ooh, internet. Because, so, <laughs> <laughs> you know, he throws these things in there. And, you know, like, don't touch that dial is, even though he explains it in the book, you know, and maybe some people may not think of that today that that's something i remember hearing when i was a kid on television television yeah that's the thing is when i when i first saw that in there that was my first thought was is that anachronistic because that's a tv thing and then i got to think oh wait no no no, that probably spun out of radio and i was glad mm-hmm. to see it in the in the companion that you know the, the confirmation of that that makes sense uh page 12 the reasons blitzkrieg want the bell are, are, are pretty thin. Mm-hmm. Like, like I am psychosomatically blind because apparently I, I had a bad reaction to somebody I was abusing throwing acid in my face. So Liberty Bell gets weird powers from the Liberty Bell. So if I expose myself to that, I can restore my blind, my, my sight. This is the underpants gnome plan from South. Right. <laughs> you know, step one, steal all underpants. Step two, conquer the. Step three, conquer the world. 
we're not getting a step two here. So, I mean, it, it's fine. I'm not complaining overly. I just, since we're, we're talking about this critically, I want to point it out. Because the story itself is really exciting. So, I mean, like on page 14, that series of panels in the middle of the page where Zyklon just comes out of nowhere and punches Liberty Bell in the face mm-hmm. when she's about... That's some great visual storytelling. Because she's really, she's ready just to axe this this uh, control panel, and suddenly he's there. And it's a vicious battle, because he's knocking the hell out of her on the bottom of that page. Yep. Uh, page <laughs> Skipping ahead to page 18, where uh, Liberty Bell is bathed in the, the, the waves of, uh, of the Liberty Bell. Eh, that works as an origin, I guess. Okay. That's fine. Uh, page 20, love the artwork. At the, the artwork in this issue... Overall, it was just phenomenal. Arville Jones has really come into yeah. his own on this title. But that top of page 20, where Liberty Bell is throwing the the Liberty Bell at, at uh, Baron Blitzkrieg, and he gets knocked back, is just awesome. I love that panel. Um, page 21, the Flash chases after Baron Blitzkrieg and Zyklon, and he has a bunch of tunnels to choose from. If only he had super speed to check right. them all out. But, uh... <laughs> You know, I'm tired, and I need to get something to eat or something. <sighs> Sorry, it's just like, what? Oh, no, not here. Not here. I mean, seriously, yep. you're the Flash. You've got another guy that's fast. But, you know, the the issue had to end. So He just didn't feel like it. Uh, page 22, so no one liked Talk Girl because she was, a ri- she was rich and thought she was kind of useless. Again, uh, where the hell is this coming from? And we have a serious Star Trek original series ending here. With it was no triple at all. But everybody shows up now that the the thing is all over. Now all the other heroes show up. But it's just the you know Green Lantern shows up. But it looks like we still got here just in time to be the cleanup crew. Look at it this way, Green Lantern. Who else around here can make his own shovel? Shovel. Uh, I am not a. Fa- I love Dan Jurgens. I am not a fan of this pinup. Uh, I, I. It doesn't look like the Dan Jurgens art we've seen from this era. Mm-mm. It's really kind of strange. I was expecting like. Something, you know, you know, we we covered that Legion issue. I I think the Legion issue had better artwork than this, so I'm kind of wondering where they got this from. Yeah, is this like from his fan days? That's kind of what I'm wondering if this is like early, early um, Dan Jurgens. It looks like he's heavily channeling uh, Keith Giffen to me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um. Which actually makes me think, since Jurgen's always kind of had a Grell style, right? Uh, to him, I really would have liked to have seen Mike Grell draw Doctor Fate. Yeah, that would have been cool. But uh, that's pretty much all I got. I mean, I enjoyed this issue quite a bit, mm-hmm. uh, like like a lot actually. Are you kind of confused at the Infinity Incorporated ad in the in the in the letters column here? Do you know where your children are? The heroes of the Justice Society do. They're in the pages of Infinity Inc. This is oh, a, it says created by, but this is an old ad. This is a. I was just going to say this is a very old ad because uh, a couple of these people are not members anymore. Because you've got um, Power Girl and the Huntress are in the ad, but they're not part of the team anymore. Neither is Brainwave, for that matter. 
And no. uh, Nor doesn't Norda have a different outfit than this at this point? Uh, who cares? It's Norda. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, this is this is more the ad of just prior to when the series came out. Mm-hmm. So yeah, they're they're kind of running a, a an old ad at this point. And yeah, the created by Ordway and Macklin, but neither one of them are on the series anymore. So yeah, it is weird. That's so. that's months out of date at this point. But those were my notes. All right. Yeah, I like you. I love the cover. I think the cover is fantastic on this one, and and that's good because we've had a. I, th- I think we've had a string of kind of lackluster covers lately, so it's it's good to get one that gets me excited about the title again. Uh, I had the same note about the Hunger Dogs thing. Just thought that was interesting. Uh, really, I didn't pick that up back in the day, only because I just didn't care for the art on it at all. Uh, <laughs> I still think it's funny you and I had the same first note on the on the story, which was put a shirt on Hawkman. Now pages two and three that spread. Did you notice the themed mugs? I thought this was great. Johnny Quick has a red mug with a big Q on it. Our man has a mug that's yellow with uh, with the hourglass symbol on it. And Amazing Man has a clear glass of water, like a little tumbler of water, with his stylized A on it. <laughs> um, did anybody else have Robot one? Man has a can of he oil. He has a can of oil. And this was the one that I'm torn over. On the one hand, it's really cute. On the other hand, it's like... Come on, really? It's it's oh, a little yeah, exactly. It's a little silly, but I'll I'll forgive it. I thought it was cute at the same rate. And there is something on the mug that Green Lantern has power ringed, but I can't. It's it the inking is. I muddy. would assume it's his symbol. Probably yeah, but it's so tiny and kind of kind of muddy in the inks that I can't quite tell what it is. Um, this question comes up a lot and i hate to keep you know bringing this up but why, why does hawkman have to be such a prick all the time he he's so acerbic a lot of the yeah. and he really is in this part he's like berating the team for you know events of last issue and that's not good leadership uh let's see here page four panel oh yeah page four panel three that shot of uh johnny quick when he stands up i really like that I don't know why exactly. I just it's a it's a dynamic pose there. I like that a lot. It reminds me of another artist, but I'm struggling to remember what other artist it reminds me of. Maybe Alan Weiss. I'm not sure, but I, I just I like that pose. Uh, likewise, page five, uh, panel five, where uh, Jormi, uh, where Johnny kind of jumps up out of his seat and he says, "That and a nickel will get me a cup of bad coffee." I just, I don't know. Again, there's something really dynamic about that. And he startles Green Lantern sitting next to him. Ah! <laughs> I was sleeping, you bastard. Page eight, skipping way ahead in the story. Although I really like the part where uh, Liberty, uh, you know, she's going to beat the hell out of a dwarf. I just think that's funny. Uh, page eight. Grinning Baron Blitzkrieg looks just damn silly right there at the top of the page. <laughs> he's he, he's silly and he's kind of creepy looking too. It's just it's really bizarre. But I do like that page. I like how everything is recapped and uh you know, make all the jokes that you want to, but the the shot at the bottom of the page of Zwerg comforting uh Blair and Baron Blitzkrieg, I, I like that. I, I just it's it's an interesting shot. I like that. Uh, okay, there's a couple of these in this issue. This is the first one. Bad Transitions. 
going from page 10 to page 11, this is a horrible transition because Hawkgirl literally comes out of nowhere. Libby's now in costume and she's flying away from the scene. Now, all I can assume is that when Johnny went into action, she just changed into her costume, hooked up with Hawkgirl and took off. But it makes it seem as if she just doesn't give a shit about what's just happened to Johnny. Because we've just seen Johnny get injured and fall from a great height. You know, he could be dead for all we know at this point. And I, I just think it's a really bad transition here. And her riding Hawkgirl is just flat ridiculous. Uh, okay, and so yet, what's that? a little titillating. Hmm? I said, and yet a little titillating. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so I know we speculated about this last episode. Um, it turns out there really isn't a lot of logic to Baron Blitzkrieg's plan, as you pointed out. You know, it really is just kind of a, uh, eh, let's see if maybe the Liberty Bell might cure me of your, of my blindness. And that's fine, but I would have liked a little more explanation as to exactly why... Why this plan? Why the Liberty Bell? What what in the world makes him think that the Liberty Bell's emanations that that give Libby her powers? Why this of all things is is the thing that he's focusing on as a possible cure for his psychological blindness? It just I, I wanted a little bit more, and we get nothing other than hey, maybe this will work, and that's pretty much it. Uh, page 14, panel 2, another bad transition. When we last left Johnny Quick, he had fallen, he knocked himself out, and he was, you know, he was injured and everything. Now, all of a sudden, we get this, this tiny little, you know, elongated panel of him and the Flash streaking to the scene. And there's no explanation, you know... We, we just see them in action. Where did the Flash come from? How did they hook up? And nothing. And it's just, uh, it's a little bit irritating. It's its kind of sloppy in a, in a lot of ways, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, oh, also on that same page, uh, I love that panel you pointed to before where uh, Zyklon is just super speed circling around Bell, just beating the hell out of her. Um, while that's not cool to beat on a woman, it's that is a great panel nonetheless. I just I like the the dynamism of that panel. I like Zyklon's outfit. I I think he looks really cool, and uh, and that's a nice super speed depiction there. Uh, page sixteen, panel one. Now I, I I don't really care for this generally, but here I wanted to point it out because here I thought it looked particular this is where it really occurred to me that it looked particularly bad I, I don't really care for the way that johnny quick's flying power is portrayed but particularly in this issue and especially here that panel he looks like casper the friendly ghost or something it just <laughs> it's really weird and i just noticed that flash looks like he's tripping too he's like Whoa! page 21 jumping way ahead here oh yes this was my big nitpick for the issue um i'm gonna blame the artists on this Baron Blitzkrieg and Zyklon escape way too quickly because you've got now the Baron on the page before was clobbered by the Liberty Bell literally Libby throws the Liberty Bell at him and just I mean it not only hits him but it looks like it's going to land on top of him so even with his super strength and and all of that you would think that's gotta hurt 
and probably would knock him out, you would think. And then she knocks Zyklon into the Flash and Johnny Quick. Johnny Quick belts Zyklon, but good. Again, looking like he probably knocks him out. And then we do we have another panel where, you know, Liberty Bell is thanking the, you know, the Flash and Johnny Quick for their assistance and they're talking and everything. And then the very next panel, they turn around and, oh my God, they're gone. So it's literally in, in one panel, they have escaped. <laughs> and it's just, it, it's a really, really bad transition at that point. There needed to be a little more of something happening, something to distract their attention. Because the Flash and, and Johnny Quick are arguably still looking in the direction that the Baron and Zyklon were laying. So it, it really makes no sense. Nobody saw them get up and walk away. I mean, to be fair, we as the audience were, you know, th- those of us that are attracted to such things. Uh, we're, we're <laughs> Distracted. <laughs> right. Um, <laughs> so, you know, us missing it is one thing. Them missing it uh, is just them being bad at their job. Right. <laughs> for the moment. So That very last panel on that page, I think the Flash looks like he's drawn by uh, Carmen Infantino, and I kind of like that. I think that's neat. He's a, he's a little elongated looking, but it's still kind of cool. I like that shot. Uh, and that's it for my specific notes on the issue. I really did like this issue, um, you know, despite... You know, some issues with the pacing and there being just there are way, way too many word balloons cluttering up each page. Um, I agree with you. I think the art really stepped up in this issue and I like it a lot. But there were a couple of instances where uh, it was starting to annoy me that so much of the really fantastic art was just way too over cluttered by uh, word balloons and an exposition. Um I mean, it's just, you know, it's a trope of comics of this time period, but especially Roy Thomas, you know, who just, you know, he, he was he was very wordy. I'm yeah. not complaining about the read. The read was fine. It was just when you look at the page, sometimes it's like, you know, this would really be serviced so much better by, by cutting back um, on, on a lot of the superfluous dialogue and things like that. But again, that's it's a nitpick. Uh, I really did like this issue a lot. And again, looking back on uh, on page eighteen, that second panel of the uh, of the Baron being zapped and Liberty Bell being caught in the in the razor, that is a great piece of art. I really like that. Mm-hmm. Where he's going, I can see. That is cool. But yeah, I like this a lot. And you know, I'm always a sucker for Baron Blitzkrieg popping uh, popping up in these stories. So I hope we see him again real soon. Now that he's got his sight back. But that's pretty much all I had on this one. Alrighty, moving right along. <laughs> Infinity Incorporated number 15. Uh, this was released on March 21st, 1985. You sound so enthusiastic, Mike. Uh, the cover copy has everybody on the team except Obsidian standing behind Chroma going, Obsidian, lay one hand on Chroma and you will reckon with us. And Obsidian goes, but that alien kid's a menace to everybody on Earth. And there's lots of fluttery McFarlane uh, thing. There's also, it looks like there's some kind of weird printing error. Uh, 
like where the image got moved or something. It's kind of strange. You do you see that? You know yours? that's funny because all right. Full disclosure. Um, I've been reading a lot of my comics digitally lately. Now I have the paper issue in my hand at the moment. But when I actually read this for purposes of this show, I read it digitally. And I saw that because I, I uh, took a cover shot of it and posted it on Facebook just as part of, you know, I've been posting pictures of the comics I'm reading lately. And I saw that and I assumed it was a scanning issue. But now seeing that, no, that really is on the cover. Yeah, that's odd because I had assumed that somebody had done that to to like cover up something that they didn't want to like maybe somebody had put their own logo on there or something like that you know because scanners yeah. used to do that a lot but uh yeah seeing that that is actually part of the cover that's weird because it's almost like it's almost like an artistic whiteout if you know what i mean yeah yeah that Great. is odd now it's really distracting i'm going to stop looking at it because that's all i'm going to be looking at uh, you know what also actually... it also looks like you know have you ever i hate when this happens have you ever had you're you're putting either taking a comic out or putting it back, and the tape sticks to the cover. <laughs> yes, that's it. Almost looks like that too. Like somebody accidentally like snagged tape on the cover of it, and then wasn't able to to pull it away successfully. But yeah, the that struggle is odd. was real. I mean, you, you, that happened, <laughs> and it's almost like you got out the hazmat, like like you hit an alarm. It's like everybody stop, and you carefully yep. peel up the tape. And you're praying the entire time, don't rip, don't rip, yep. don't rip, don't rip. And then it, uh, like, my wife watched me go through that in the early part of our relationship and just kind of shook her head uh, until she tried to take one out of the bag. And every time she tried to take it out of the bag, she got it snagged. <laughs> now, thankfully, these were newer books, <laughs> so it wasn't as much of a problem. But, yeah, the struggle was real. Do you uh, remember when Walden Books used to put their own sticker, their own UPC sticker yeah. on the cover of comics? I can distinctly remember one time sitting in our in our place that we had together, Chris Honeywell and I, and uh, and I was taking the stickers off, and he just sat there in amazement that I could do that without tearing the cover. And I'm like, dude, I'm well practiced at, at it at this point. But yeah, that used to make me nuts when they would do that. The title to this story is Song Without End, Amen. Roy Thomas was the writer-editor. Todd McFarlane was the penciler-in-residence. Tony DiZaniga was the inker-artist. Dan Thomas, co-plotter. Anthony Tolland and Adrian Roy, colorists. And the Cody was the letterer. That's all television is, my dear. Nothing but auditions. George Sanders to Marilyn Monroe, All About Eve, 1950. We open on Obsidian being 16 different kinds of pissed off that the other Infinidors are watching a video of how Chroma interrupted a concert, played some sad bastard music, and went on about the end of the world or some shit like that. I really am trying to block the previous issue out of my mind. <laughs> sad bastard music, TM, uh, the movie uh, High Fidelity. Obsidian did what we all probably wanted to do and knocked the guy out. When Todd turns off the television, everyone tells him to turn it back on because they really liked the wordless song he conjured up, and before the matter can be decided, the Star Spangled Kid dramatically enters the room. He talks about how he just got back in from New York, and boy, are his arms tired, and heard about the thing with Chroma on the news. Everyone gangs up on Obsidian, and they turn the video back on. The kid thinks Chroma is something and tries to get more info from him from Todd, who isn't all that helpful team gets called to the medical center where chroma is being treated and soon everybody is in the star rocket racer heading into town 
A crowd has formed around the center and it, uh, around the medical center, and it rapidly becomes a mob. But Jade manages to contain said mob with a 15-foot green concrete wall. Jade and Hector stay behind in case the mob gets antsier, while the rest of the team head inside. There they find that the FBI has gotten involved, and by the way, Chroma is awake, and his doctor is very protective of him. Apparently, Chroma is as human as everyone else in the room that has superpowers, but they can't figure out what sex he or she is. Ew. One thing is, one thing is clear. Chroma wants to use television to spread his or her message. The team are ordered to stop Chroma, but he or she manages to escape after landing, laying the smackdown on the team. Obsidian wants to go after him, but the rest of the team tells him no. He ignores this and chases after Chroma anyway. Chroma makes his way to the crowd and starts to answer their questions, and by answer, I mean spout some nonsense that would be more at home in some shitty self-help seminar than in this comic. (laughs) Uh, Todd goes to attack, but the other Infinidors try to stop him because Chroma is that freaking awesome or something. Jade puts, finally puts Todd in a green bubble, and the team takes him down before he can strike Chroma again. Apparently, getting killed was Chroma's plan all along. You see, he was an alien that came to Earth and assumed the form of Chroma to perform the world's largest social experiment, and if they had struck down his body, he would become more powerful... No, wait, that's not it. Uh, and if they had struck down his body, everyone would have just uh, had that freaking song stuck in their head for eternity. So really... Uh, the rest of the Infinidors are the heroes of this book from keeping from Todd from killing it. As it is, Chroma is done for the moment, and he will be back in a million years or so, which coincidentally is when I will stop being mad that I had to read this story. <laughs> oh, wait a minute. Chroma- it sounds to me like you actually were able to make some sort of sense of this. <laughs> yeah. Wow. <laughs> Chroma Good leaves you, and there's man, an ending. That- yeah, that didn't happen <laughs> over at my house. Uh, Chroma leaves and there's an ending that would be right at home at one of the more introspective, i.e. boring episodes of Next Gen, followed by Thomas hanging a lantern on the fact that television is bad or something. Yeah. I, I, good God, this was awful. (laughs) Yep. I mean, I, I, I have, I have not liked issues of Infinity Incorporated coming up to this point. Uh, this was just like the one that made me actually angry that I had to read it. <laughs> because, uh, well, I'll get into my notes in a second. Uh, historical notes from the All Star Companion Volume Four. <laughs> I can't wait for this. Well, let's let's turn the page. Do, 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 do. This. Is, oh wait, why am I? I'm going to I'm going to number forty six because that's what we just covered with All Star Squadron. So, uh, da, 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 da. number fifteen. Uh, we've got the synopsis. Uh, and then on the next page, <laughs> nothing. Uh, yeah, there's no notes on this. <laughs> wait a second, wait a second, there's something here. Uh, Chroma's plan to force Infinity to slay his corporeal form, thus ensuring that humanity's collective brain would never be rid of me in my song, foiled the... Oh, that's part of the synopsis. So, yeah, there's really... There is nothing on this issue. Right. There... Wow. No notes. Uh, the androgynous alien Chroma does his, her, its multicolored thing in Infinity Incorporated number 15, and that is literally it. The rest of the page is made up of notes about Mr. Bones. 
I am going to go out on a limb and say that I think that uh, Roy Thomas thinks as little of this particular issue as I think you and I do by the fact that he he put no notes on it whatsoever. I, yeah, I think it's... that speaks volumes. Yeah, I... Uh... You go through your your feeling. I actually have kind of a diatribe here, instead of like page by page notes. So oh, okay. You go through your thing first. I I really have the barest of notes on this. Um, as I said before, I see this one in the fifty cent bins all the time, and for very good reason. As a matter of fact, I, I'm pretty sure the issue I'm holding in my hands I got out of the fifty cent bin. I don't like this cover. I think it is incredibly amateurish. I defended the cover last time around, but I I can't on this one. This really does look like something you would see in like the Marvel tryout book or something like that. <laughs> Sorry, Todd. Um, I do, however, really like the opening splash. I was tempted to start going through the issue as I was making my notes, pointing out things that I liked, but I decided to kind of sum it all up by saying that uh, overall... I think the art is greatly improved from the last issue, mostly because Todd has pretty much cut out the gimmicks that he was chalking the last issue full of. Unfortunately, with the story being completely unremarkable and absolutely forgettable, it it doesn't it doesn't service his art because I think the art's actually pretty good. It's just, it's, it's art for a very lousy story, unfortunately. So yeah, it's kind of wasted on this issue. Um, I, I do have just the barest of specific notes on the issue here. Um, page eight, panel three, this made me nuts. So you've got the, the thing I counted, this as one panel at the top. We've got the woman talking on television. Then underneath that, you see the protesters, they're all behind barricades and everything. And one of them says, look, uh, what's that that just landed on the roof? Must have been those Infinity guys. And then somebody else says, uh, they're the ones that creamed uh, Krona in the first place. What are they here for? To polish him off? And then we cut to a shot of the Infinitors standing, what, at least four stories above the crowd, way up on the top of the building. And you've got Nuclon saying, they sure can turn quick, can't they, heck? And I'm thinking... How in the hell could you possibly hear that from all the way up there? No. No, 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 no. That doesn't happen. So, yeah, that's ridiculous. Uh, Jumping way ahead here, page 16, that bottom panel. Now, excusing the fact that it is an ass shot of Chroma, I actually kind of like that. There's something very dramatic about this shot of him just, like, throwing the doors open and he's going out to face the crowd. I I do kind of like that one. That was the only other specific art note that I had on this. Um, That's pretty much it. I mean, the only thing in the entire issue that actually got me excited at all was the next issue box that says they call him... Mr. Bones. I like mm-hmm. that character, and I'm very excited that uh, that we're going to uh, get the introduction of him next issue. And there's a really nice uh, pinup on the inside back cover uh, of Mr. Bones. I'm not sure who this is. I think this might be Mike Macklin, but I'm not positive. But I really like that shot of, uh, yeah. of Mr. Bones there. But that's the only thing that I liked in this entire issue. What a piece of shit. Yeah, you know, oddly enough, I kind of liked the cover, but now that I'm looking at it, I mean, Star Spangled Kid looks like he's hiding behind Fury. Right. Uh, Don't let him get me, Fury. 
Yeah, and, uh, well, Nuclon's on the cover, so obviously that takes it down a couple notches anyways. Uh, but he's just like, what, is he just punching the air? I mean, it's just... And, and, and Todd, excuse the Family Guy reference, but Todd looks like he says, he's saying, I am so awkward! <laughs> he looks... <laughs> um, okay, Thomas is used... Tom, Thomas is... Thomas uses television as a narrative tool in this story. Mm-hmm. I didn't work it into the synopsis because how the hell was I supposed to do that? Right. Uh, but at the top of the issue and throughout the entire story, we see different news reports of the reaction to Chroma showing, show, to Chroma showing and being Chroma, basically. And it's all well and good, but in the very beginning, it was very distracting because you see Todd pointing towards a camera, like a, like a, a, a news thing. And when I turned the page, I thought what was going on at the top of the page led into what was going on the bottom of the page. And it didn't make a whole lot of sense until I figured out that, no, the top of the page is almost a separate story that's just commenting on what's going on. Right. And it's, it's just all well and good, but it's distracting and made this book more overblown than it already is. Had I'm we, really tr- I'm sorry, I didn't mean you interrupt. Had we seen this as a thing in comics up to this point? Because I know I have seen it. Teen Titans, maybe a little okay, bit. Yeah, uh, using that and uh, Dare and Frank Miller ne- in the next year would definitely start using it in, in Dark Knight Returns. Right. See, I was I instantly thought of Dark Knight, and I think he did it in Daredevil too, if I'm not mistaken. So I was trying to what what I was really trying to figure out in this. Is is this Thomas inventing this, or is he just using something new that may have just come along that someone else, someone else had come up with? Because I kind of like... I don't like how it works in this issue, but I have seen other stories where that works to great effect. Mm-hmm. But I, I could not remember how early I had ever seen that in comics, and if this might be the first instance of it or not, I'm really not sure. I'm just, more than anything, I'm just trying to figure out what the hell Thomas was trying to say with this issue. Uh, I, I guess the point of the thing was to challenge humanity's perceptions of itself uh. and its inevitable death. But I mean, I mean, it's a bold move having this idea take up two issues. But ultimately, it did nothing for me. Right. Since this title began, we've seen ten issues worth of the team coming together, one Prince conference, and a run-in with a Golden Age villain. And Thomas has done some good work with the, with a few of the characters, but on the whole, the title has been uneven in terms of me giving a crap oh, yeah. about the team. Yeah. Uh, again, I know there's a point to the story. I know that Thomas was trying to do something different with the idea of a young hero team because he talks about in the letters columns how he doesn't like young hero teams. Uh, but this isn't... I mean, it wasn't the, this wasn't the space opera of the Teen Titans or the metaphorical angst of the X-Men. So on one hand, I salute him. On the other hand, I didn't like this story. The art was uneven. Some pages looked great, others didn't. I don't think McFarlane pulled off what Thomas was going for, which made some scenes like the first one kind of confusing. However, there is some dynamic artwork in here, and I think all the characters had some nice artistic moments to shine. But basically, what I got from it is, television's bad, okay? And... (laughs) And, and, you know, just just the whole thing of all... It's basically Chroma's this alien entity that's messing with us. This is a original series Star Trek episode. 
Yeah, this is. Uh, oh God, what's that one with uh, with Lazarus? That's what it, the alternative factor. This is definitely the alternative factor of Infinity Inc. stories. Yes. And I just don't think Infinity Inc. was the title to do this with. I mean, maybe he was going for something and it just didn't work out. And that's what we're really responding to, the fact that it didn't work out. Because if he had done it well, we may have liked it, you know? Right. But I'm just not... I get almost the sense that Thomas created this team and then didn't really know what to do with them outside of the first story. Like, like you know, maybe he wanted to try to do something different. Because, again, at this point we had, uh, you know, Legion, and we had the X-Men, and we had New Teen Titans. And they all, they all had differences, but they were all basically the same concept. A bunch of young heroes coming together and hanging out and fighting bad guys. You know, the Legion was all about family and, and, and the team and, and, and different races and all that coming together. The New Teen Titans was the sidekicks and the young heroes having a place to come to, to be themselves and find their own way in the world. And the X-Men, the X-Men at this point were, were adults. I don't, you know, you can't even call that a young teen series anymore because outside of Kitty Pride, everybody was over 20. So, you know, it, it, it just that was more of a, a book teenagers responded to, but it wasn't about teenagers. Right. And it was all about using them to explore social taboos and all that. And for Chris Claremont to just rip off other people's ideas and use it for his own. And when you realize that and realize that the brood are just the aliens from alien and that the entirety of the hellfire club was lifted wholesale from an issue episode of the Avenger, the British Avengers TV series and that Corsair and the Star Jammers is really just Star Trek and Star Wars, you really start, th- you know, thinking that Chris Claremont was not the innovative writer that everyone gets some credit for. Right. So, you know, it's just, it, I just didn't like this issue. And I was a little snarky in my in my synopsis, but that was like a self-defense mechanism. Like, if I don't poke fun at this, I'm going to explode. And that's all I really have to say about the issue. <laughs> I, I, I really, I, in fact, I think I said too much. In, in all honesty, because he he took this high-minded concept and didn't explore it. I mean, you you made the joke that I managed to make sense of it. I really kind of had to think about it for a minute, and it really was at the end. I was like, oh, is that what he's going for? Oh, really? That's uh, okay. Well, whatever. Mister Bones is in the next issue. I'm looking forward to that. If I'd have had to synopsize it as you did, then maybe I would have dug deeper to to find the meaning of, of you know just what the hell was he on about with this? I think it was the combination of it it's not readily apparent for one thing, I don't think, but also it was the combination of it's a lackluster story and I kind of checked out mentally after the first issue. So yeah. it was it was essentially it came down to don't give a shit is why I didn't really I got to the end of this issue and I was like, I don't know what the hell that was all about, because I just didn't care what it was about by that point. Mm-hmm. I just wanted it to be over with. And and that's that's not good, you know, <laughs> but I but I didn't. I just was ready for Chroma to just, you know, do whatever he was going to do and go away, you know, whether that was to prison or, you know, back into outer space or, you know, to Boot Hill or whatever. I, I just wanted him to go away. Yeah, I I didn't. I was today. He'd get his own reality series. 
like on the Wii Network or something. It'd be, it'd be like Chroma in LA, you know. <laughs> Maybe people would give a crap. So, well, we have one more section of the show to go, and then that's it for this time around. We are going to take a quick look at Elsewhere in the DC Multiverse Crisis Management Edition. And I know what some of you are thinking. You're probably going, wait a minute, I thought you said we were done with this section. Well, kind of, sort of. The thing, here's the funny thing, is that although Crisis is well underway at this point, we're uh, creeping up on the fourth issue next time around, uh, we are still, we still have a couple of what essentially are pre-Crisis monitor appearances. It's just they happen to be published after the Crisis has actually started. So that's what this is all about this time around. Again, all synopses are from the official Crisis on Infinite Earths crossover index. This time around, we are looking at two issues. We are looking at Batman number 384 and Detective Comics number 551. Now, these are lumped together in the crossover index under the same heading. So the same synopsis goes for both of them so it just reads as such it's very simple it just says the monitor helps dr fang's gang hire the calendar man the monitor is behind the scenes in the latter book the latter book being detective 551 the monitor's role in batman number 384 is on page two we get the obligatory establishing shot of the satellite in orbit followed by one panel of the Monitor and Lila discussing the call they've just received from Gotham. Lila is in her standard pink jumpsuit with the plunging neckline, but she doesn't have a necklace on in this particular shot. Uh, the Monitor, all we see of him is his hands, just as hands are shown. Uh, again, he's sitting in his chair, so we're getting the back of him, but we don't even see the back of his head. We just see his hands. But here's what's interesting this time. He has yellow gloves, which I know a lot of you are like, ooh, but, you know, it's just a notable difference. That's it uh, on this particular yeah. story. He is talked about and referenced uh, a couple of times in both Batman uh, 384 before and after we see him. And then he is only talked about in Detective 551. Uh, essentially in Detective 551 he's bitched about by the villains that have hired the Monitor to find a villain that can defeat the Batman and they're not happy with the Monitor's choice of villain being the Calendar Man is essentially what it comes down to so he is very much uh, just you know the mechanism of of pitting Calendar Man against Batman in this story that said I have no specific notes uh, on either issue i did read them both and uh they're both written by the same writer so the the story it's it's funny because they're written by the same writer but i think each issue had a very different feel for me so i don't know if that came down mm -hmm. to the art or what i really like rick hoberg as an artist however i didn't like batman five uh excuse me uh 384's art so I'm going to assume it's because of the inker who is Rudy Nebris. I'm not real familiar uh, familiar with that inker, but yeah, the the art just didn't do it for me in uh, in the Batman issue. Although the story was really cool, um, I liked the story so much better how it picks up in Detective Five Fifty One because the art team on this one is Pat Broderick mm -hmm. and Bob Smith, and I love the art in this issue now 
while I had a lot of issues of Batman as a kid before I started collecting Batman, you know, buying it off the stands and trying to build a collection, the issue that I actually purchased for the first time off the stands and and had a solid run of, gosh, almost 20 years was an issue of Broderick's run on Detective. It was Detective... God, I can't remember the number now, but it was the one that was the spider. Uh, the spider's ninth leg was the name of the story in that one. I'll never forget it. So this is right in that era of when I had started collecting um, Detective right off the right off the stands. So this was nice. This was a nice little walk down memory lane because I I think the world of uh, of Pat Broderick. I think he's a fantastic artist and uh, and I love his Batman. This looks really good, and uh, he's using the. Uh, the Batmobile that I like so much, like from the super friends. Mm-hmm. And I don't know why I didn't consciously think about this before digging into the story, but I started reading this and was like, Oh my God, this is Jason Todd, Robin. I just didn't even occur to me that this was this. Era. So this, that was nice too, because we get a couple of really nice beats uh, where you can see kind of the direction that things would go here where where there's this tension between Batman and Robin because of Jason Todd's character of being uh you know hot-tempered and impetuous and not wanting to follow Batman's lead and things like that. I thought that was handled really well in this story. Um unfortunately between these two issues this is not a complete story it is continued uh, it says in next week's Batman issue. So I, you know, just reading just these two issues alone, I didn't get the complete story, but I wasn't really into the story anyway. Um, by this point, it really, by the time I got to detective, it became all about the art, which again, I, I think is just fantastic. The battle between Batman and calendar man in this issue, particularly I'm looking right now at pages 13 and 14. Oh my God, is this glorious? This is the Batman. I like, because he's tough, he puts up a good fight, but he's not infallible. I mean, he takes his he takes his licks in this fight, and uh, and I like that. I thought that was pretty cool. That's pretty much all I really had on this. What did you think of it, Mike? Uh, did you notice the date that he was uh, going to kill Batman? Was it your birthday? No, it was April twenty first. What's today's date? Oh my lord! No, I didn't. <laughs> I didn't even put that I was together. About that yesterday, when I was reading this, I was like, "Wow, that's that's some nice happenstance." There. Oh wow! <laughs> um, I have not read all of Doug Minch's run on Batman and Detective. Uh, I've read a, a good chunk of it, uh, but uh, and my only problems with the, his run on this is that he amps the soap opera. Oh yeah, angle of this up to eleven. I mean, the you know we we have this whole little subplot. Where Vicky Vale has broken up with Bruce Wayne, and now Julia, who who finally takes the name Pennyworth because she is mm-hmm. uh, Alfred's daughter, uh, the name she takes the name Pennyworth, and she's now just started to date Bruce, but she's having problems with him constantly breaking dates, so it's just like I I kind of like roll my eyes at this kind of stuff, but at the same time. You know, this is a different era of Batman. You know, that was an era where Batman having a romantic interest was something that was apparently worth exploring. Right. Because really, after the crisis, they didn't do a whole lot of that. No. Uh, outside of Vesper Fairchild, uh, right around the time of No Man's Land. 
And they even ended that relationship at No Man's Land. So, and she ends up dead, uh, which leads into the whole Bruce Wayne murderer, Bruce Wayne fugitive storyline. The uh, the Calendar Man, I, I like how he has a different costume basically in every scene to represent different, you know, period, you know, times of the calendar. Uh, they put his more traditional costume on the cover, and that's what you would see in the Who's Who entry, but uh, it's not quite his costume. I liked what Jeff Loeb did with the Calendar Man in The Long Halloween, where he basically became the Hannibal Lecter character. Uh, this bald dude sitting in a cell, you know, giving uh, giving the police and the, the, the people that need it the information on the psychological makeup of and of the... Uh, of the care of the holiday killer. So uh, I see, I, I will always see this Jason Todd as completely distinct from the Jason Todd of the post crisis. Cause even though he's impetuous here, this isn't impetuous on the way to get him killed. This is him being impetuous because Bruce is sidelining him because Bruce doesn't want him to put him in danger. Right. Not that Jason was being impetuous. So Bruce wants to sideline him. Uh, and it's basically just for a dramatic effect. I mean, at the end of the detective issue, Alfred's like, you know, he's gone and he's taking the costume with him because we see the empty closet and all that. Right. So, but dude, I, I was I was a little annoyed. He was just like Jason Todd's sleeping. He told him not to go out. And he wakes him up in the middle of the night. Go down to the cave and work on the computer for me because I need stuff. <laughs> I mean, you can't punch people in the face, but you can you can tap those keys. But no, I I like these issues. This isn't like my preferred era of Batman, but I still enjoy it quite a bit because it, it is, it's right before Batman became a complete prick. Yeah. Uh, so, so I, I kind of appreciate that. Like this is, this is the end of the, you know, it's not the TV series Batman cause it's a little darker and a little more adult, but it's still that kind of, you know, Batman and Robin and Robin's a kid and, they're fighting colorful villains in Gotham City, and I kind of appreciated the story on that level. Even this is, you know, even though this is 1985 by this point, this is still very much 70s Batman, and, yes. and that's why that's what I really like. This is the end of 70s Batman, really. Um, Batman, I would argue, did have a Bronze Age, so this is Bronze Age Batman. And yeah, I, and he definitely I, had yeah. a Bronze Age. It was the the, the Denny O'Neill era. And the and the Frank Robbins stuff kicked that off, right? You know, and it, it went right into this. It, it's funny that I, you know, I don't really think about this very often, but it's funny that you know so many fans, you know, piss and moan about what was done with Superman post Crisis, you know, with Burns revamp and everything. I've not really heard a whole lot of people complain too much about what was done with Batman post Crisis. But reading this brought a lot of those feelings back to me because a lot of this era was wiped away by the crisis. Because you mentioned Julia Pennyworth. She was completely removed from continuity post this. And I missed that character because I I came to like her quite a bit. I I liked her both in the role that she she gave Alfred some much-needed character and depth because... You know, he'd always just kind of been, you know, he's Batman's butler and that was it. He didn't really have a character, but that, you know, having a daughter and everything now added some dimension and some character to him. But I also liked her as part of just the Bat family, you know, as as Bruce's, you know, sort of girlfriend and all that. Yeah, this this is an era that uh, 
I, I just I have a real soft spot for it just because this is when I was actively reading and collecting Batman, you know, before the, the first movie came out. And, uh, you know, I, I hadn't revisited this stuff in a long, long time. So reading it again was uh, was it was interesting. It was it was a treat because, you know, like I said, I do have a real soft spot for it. But I definitely saw where it is very different from Batman today. And there were there were points of it where I was like, well, this is very much a product of its time. Mm-hmm. So it would be interesting to do like a full reread. Uh, of this era at some point which i've been intending to do for years i just hadn't made the time for it yet but uh i i think the main reason you didn't have the i almost said batlash uh but the backlash god that was a (laughs) i think the reason you didn't have the backlash is because superman had a very public revamp you know the books weren't doing all that well but you know they they made a big deal out of look at what we're changing right you know, look look at how everything is is different and with batman the changes were so not subtle because it just happens well actually no no I'll argue with that because you have batman 400 which really closes the door on the bronze age batman sort of because while in Batman, the title Batman, you have you know Denny O'Neill becomes editor at like four hundred one, and Detective five sixty eight or something like that, I believe. So, you know, in Batman, you had this weird like couple of issues. You had the Legends crossover, and then you had this weird storyline with this guy, this cop who you know was dressing up like Batman and all that, and then it went into year one. And right after year one, Max Allen Collins started his kind of short, not very well-received run, where they revamped Jason Todd. Right. But it's like, like, but Batman's history was still pretty much intact. They didn't go back and say, you know, there, 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 there never was, you know, like, like Joe Chill, you know, didn't shoot his parents or whatever. They didn't, they didn't make some fundamental changes. You know, it's like Thomas and Martha weren't alive, essentially. Because that would kind of ruin the entire point of Batman. But because of the popularity of Dark Knight Returns and Batman Year One, that brought people back to Batman. So they hadn't been reading this, so they didn't know there was a change. Right, yes. Now, there were there were complaints in the letters column, uh, in the in the early issues of Detective especially, because when Mike W. Barr took over writing Detective, he was essentially writing... 80s version of the Batman television series with some great Alan Davis artwork. And, you know, right up until year two, which most people think happened a year after year one, and timeline-wise it did, but it was literally the next month after year one part four comes out, year two part one started up in Detective. Right. So it was like, you know, Batman was in this weird nebulous period up until right around the time of the movie, and even then... Detective was a very different animal from Batman. So, Batman post-crisis is actually kind of more confusing than Superman post-crisis. It was confusing emotionally because, you know, I was still... You know, you joked before about, you know, I, I used the term I was a kid a lot, even when I was in my 20s. And, you know, and I was in my 20s by the time... You know, by the time Batman 89 came out, the, the film came out, I was uh, I was 21 when that film came out, 
And but I can remember post that movie being in a really weird emotional place with Batman because looking back on it now, you know, after so many years and with all the hindsight and everything, I now realize that Batman at that time, and, and it, this is carried forward to the present day, was the first taste I ever got of be careful what you wish for because Batman in my life was a victim of his own popularity because mm-hmm. I liked Batman this way. I liked him as the way he was when I was reading him when nobody gave two shits about Batman. And <laughs> as soon as the movie came out and was a smash hit and Batman became a thing to where now he has had, you know, all of these motion pictures and we're headed toward another one and everything, he has changed so much and and and, and become such a very different character from this iteration that really that that would be the best way i could describe him for me personally as a victim of his own popularity because i don't like the the portrayal of present day batman and and a lot of that spins directly out of that very first burton film now don't get me wrong i'm not blaming tim burton or that film for what batman has become but that in conjunction with what you said about like uh like Miller's Batman, you know, Dark Knight Returns, those you know, and Batman Year One, those factors all combined that so over the course of the last twenty something years, he really is a completely different character from what he was at this point. Oh, absolutely. And and, and it's kind of funny because people when they talk about characters and their evolutions, they like to keep things pretty simple. They want a good narrative through line. And it's, you know, it's very easy to say that, well, writers after Frank Miller were just aping Frank Miller. And that's not quite true because Alan Grant, when he came on to detective comics, cause he was the, he and John Wagner who were uh, British writers mm-hmm. uh, came on to detective after Mike W. Barr came off the title. And, they were telling, you know, very, like, kind of updated, I wouldn't say Bronze Age stories, but they were, they were pretty much Batman of that time period. Like, right. like, like this is, this is Batman as he would exist now. And it's funny because John Wagner begged off the assignment after about a year uh, because, you know, the book really wasn't selling all that well. And then, like, six months later, Batman 89 comes out and suddenly the royalty checks start pouring in. And but but you know Alan Grant, especially you know when Norm Brayfogle came on that title, that was like definitive Batman of that time. Period. Right. Yeah. You know it, you know they created all of these you know like uh, the ventriloquist and Mister Zazz and Cadaver and like all of these really Joe Potato uh, and like all these really weird villains and side characters and all that, and then Batman eighty nine happens and you have this weird kind of two world the two worlds of batman because in the comics yes he's dark and brooding but he's really going somewhere because they created tim drake and that created a focal point right you know for you know creatively so that yeah batman's going along but he's training this new robin because death in the family again was one of those big splash events but and people's like well you know jason todd was just a prick and everyone hated him and they and they we voted to kill him but 
that's that's the lazy comic book documentary right of, yeah of the tale yeah because that's so, not necessarily true yeah so even through the 90s when you had chuck dixon and alan grant and, and doug mensch coming back and, and really they're the caretakers of the character through that decade even then where i love all that stuff batman's kind of a prick Mm-hmm. I mean, you you go back and, and especially and I love Chuck Dixon. I will never say anything bad about his art, but I won't always agree with the creative choices he made. And he seemed to be at the forefront of this. Bruce Wayne is a complete useless noob, you know that that is just oh I'm so silly because I'm rich because I don't want you to think I'm Batman. Meanwhile, Batman's got this my way or the highway, and it just it just kept amping up and amping it up and amping. And I was having a conversation with some people on Facebook about this the other day, where they're like, "Well, this is where Batman became a prick." I'm like, "No, we got to move the needle back, guys, right? Because it was it, it was a slow descent into that. We just woke up one day and realized it had happened." But, See, I'm so you know, happy to hear you say that because that that's exactly what I was thinking. Is that that's why you know we were talking about. We were talking about this almost as if, like, crisis was the delineating line, but it's really not. In my mind, what the delineating line is really is that 89 movie, because after that point, that's when, you know, the character had been changing, of course, because crisis changed him. They they tweaked things with his origin, characters fell away, certain elements of his backstory fell away, and new ones were introduced. So the character was already in a state of flux, and he was already changing. But it was that 89 movie and, and being such a smash hit and everything that that's where the, the process accelerated. So it, it was a slow process up to that point. And then to me, it always felt like between the first movie and Batman Returns, the second movie, that the process accelerated that much faster to, as you say, one day I just kind of woke up and realized, wow, this really is not the same character anymore and it was not much after batman returns which was what 91 i think 92 92 that uh that i finally uh let go of the character you know as far as uh, uh, you know collecting all the issues and all and uh and that was tough that was really tough because by that point you know i had collected the series since around gosh i'm trying to think of when that when i picked up that um, that particular Broderick issue, but I'm thinking it pro- was probably somewhere between 82 and 84. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a good long stretch. Plus, at that time, back issue, you know, when I first got into Batman, you know, like I say, nobody cared about Batman, which I, I know for, for younger readers and younger fans and younger listeners is probably really hard to imagine a time when comic book people didn't care yeah. about Batman, but... There was that that period where nobody cared about Batman because I can remember taking a lot of flack from you know my my friends about like oh really you're reading Batman who cares about Batman he just wasn't a thing you know so the back issues of that were dirt cheap so I had a collection that went back you know many years before uh, I was buying them off the stand so all told I had a solid run of Batman by the time I finally gave up on the on the book which was about a 20-year stretch. So, you know, it was... it was. You, you could watch that, that, that descent, you know, that slow change of the, of the character, you know, into more, you know, the more modern version of the character. 
and uh and i just never you know i never cared for that that new you know the more modern interpretation of him because he did become a, a real bastard <laughs> as you say but also i never liked the the master planner the master strat you know <laughs> where he was just the unbeatable you know he was 15 steps ahead of everybody else i you know <laughs> And that really started with Grant Morrison and JLA, uh, you know, because in the very first story arc, Batman is fighting, you know, Martians and, and doing very well for himself. And and there's a, there's another uh, issue where there's another storyline, Rock of Ages, where Lex Luthor is revealed to be, you know, heading up a new Injustice gang or Injustice League. And Batman's like, well, he doesn't know he's facing somebody who is just as good as businesses himself, Bruce Wayne. And then I'm thinking about it, I'm like, uh, no, uh, you're good, and Bruce Wayne is good, but the public perception of Bruce Wayne is that Lucius Fox does all the work for him. Mm-hmm. And that that was very carefully controlled. And, uh, you know, it, it's kind of weird for me, because on one hand, the 90s was where I was in, you know, where I was the ba- the Batman reader, you know, for, for on and off for most of the decade. You know, that was my era, you know, you know, late 80s, early 90s. And, and then, you know, right around the time of uh, I got back in with Cataclysm, I loved and going back and reading all that stuff as I did, like about 10 years ago, I just I just loved it. But, you know, looking at it with you know not not like a a, you know taking off my rose tinted glasses which i think is a little unfair because the material is still really good but you really honestly had three batman running around uh in in the dc universe at that time you Mm -hmm. had batman and detective comics who was a little more cold and calculating uh still a good character still cared about the people in his life but he was a stern taskmaster you had the batman of shadow of the bat written by alan grant which was a more psychological book you know driven by you know the motivations of the characters so he was a little more introspective in that book and then you had batman itself which was you know written by doug moench munch not moench i'm not 15 anymore i can say that name um but you had doug Minch writing these gangster type stories, but there was like a lot of supernatural stuff thrown in at the same time. So it, it, it's kind of weird because they would try and they had several storylines. They had, you know, prodigal, which was followed by Troika, which was followed by contagion, which was followed by legacy, which was followed by cataclysm, which was followed by no man's land, where they tried to make the books all connect but I think it really proves how special the Superman books were in the 90s, that that was the only property that could make the multi-title uh, thing work. Right. Like, all of those people may not have liked being on the same page, but it, you really couldn't tell that all that much from the actual work. Whereas when Batman or Spider-Man or even the freaking Punisher tried to do it, it just didn't work because they, they were too separate. And I think that proves something else is that you don't need four titles for these characters. You don't need four Batman titles because then you got four different Batman running around. So, you know, two should be the the limit. But oddly enough, this era of Batman that we're talking about today was connected. It was Batman going to detective, going into Batman, going to detective. And you kind of had to read both titles to keep up with the story. Right. So uh, I don't know if that was maddening at the time, but I kind of appreciate it now. It was only in the aspect of, you know, 
distribution being what it was and newsstands being what it was that if you you know you missed an issue then you were kind of screwed but i mean that that was always comics anyway yeah. so even you know <laughs> even if they had kept the story all in one you know like kept you know the, the ongoing story all in batman for example well you weren't assured of getting every issue of batman so it really didn't make a difference ultimately but yeah but that would happen a lot too where sometimes you would get you know, consistently you would get, say, Batman, but you might not consistently get Detective. So then you would have holes in the story because the two did go back. You know, so yeah, it was just one of those, you know, one of those things about the way comics were back then. But it, it just it it's funny to me that you know you clearly know the criticisms that superman faces that he's always faced you know he's too Mm -hmm. powerful and he's boring and you know he's unbeatable and all that and i wonder why does batman seem to escape those same criticisms you know virtually unscathed (laughs) because this it seems to me that as they have ramped batman up over the years to be from this version where i mean in this issue He's taking his knocks from the friggin' calendar man of all yeah. people to now, you know, he's the ultimate of everything. You know, he's the ultimate fighter, the ultimate planner, the ultimate strategist. You know, he can he can beat Superman, you know, and, and all this ridiculous shit. <laughs> to me, it's made the character less interesting because now if Batman today were to face say the penguin, it just seems ludicrous. So I'm wondering, how does Batman escape that same criticism of being too powerful and boring for being too powerful, whereas that continues to to be a criticism that dogs Superman to this very day? How does that happen? Fanaticism. It, it, it's it's just that simple. I, you know, to be fair, and in the interest of full disclosure, not all writers treat Batman that way. Scott Snyder's run, which I've read the bulk of. Uh, especially his year zero where he was like kind of redoing the origin of Batman, Mm -hmm. uh, which was actually really good. It was like, if this had been Batman begins and they had continued on like this, I think I would have liked those films better, but he, he did write a Batman that screwed up and he did write a Batman that, you know, in in, in the, the court of owls storyline that kicked off the new 52 Batman, Batman's captured and hallucinating. I mean, he's messed up. So, but Batman fandom is a completely different thing, and I try not to hold a character's fandom against him. But you have these people, and I'm not saying it's all Bat fans, but in, in encountering them, and I really blame Christopher Nolan for this too, by the way, that they will at the same time, in the same breath, say Batman is the greatest because he's the most human character that can never be defeated. And once you start putting in there that Batman can overcome any obstacle, how is that any different from Superman being overpowered? Right. Because if you're saying that you can't create a credible threat for Superman, one, you're stupid. Uh, I'm just going to throw that out there. But two, you're, you're, you're basically saying, I don't have the imagination to create a threat big enough for him but Batman can go up against anybody. Batman fighting Darkseid pisses me off on a level that I, can, I, 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 I can't even talk about it right now. 
Because it's like Batman should not be fighting Darkseid. That is not his function. And once you start putting him up against those powerhouses, he is now not the most human superhero. Right. And just because you can't admit that, and you can't accept that, and you want to have Batman rules, Superman drools, and this whole bullshit that is out there right now in fandom. You know, (laughs) Donovan Morgan Grant and I uh, talk about this from time to time. Because, you know, he's a really big Batman fan. I'm a really big Superman fan. But we both look at our own fandoms and go, what the hell is wrong with you people? Right, so, yeah. And, and, and it's really one of those things that, you know, we, we, we have a trailer out right now where Batman and, and Superman are kind of confronting each other at the end. And that is everyone's big takeaway from this. And all it's going to do, all it's going to do is is for the Superman fans that are butthurt because they have uh, allowed their favorite character to lapse into the state he's in right now because they didn't do something about it 10 years ago uh, when they should have. Because I think this, I think DC Comics has proved that their reaction to Superman not selling makes everything worse. So you can't even say anymore, oh, just stop buying the books. That'll, that'll, that'll send a message. Because apparently that message is, we're not fucking this up enough. So yep. we got to we got to go deeper. We got to take a deeper dive, as they say at work, you know, and, and, and move into this. But it's just all it's going to do is all these rabid Batman fans that just have it up their have it up their craw that, you know, it's almost like they're threatened by Superman. You know, like like they have to say that Batman can beat Superman because if Superman's out there, suddenly Batman isn't the best. And how the hell does that work? Because you can like different characters for different reasons. But no, that doesn't work in, in today's internet age where everything has to be compartmentalized and, and, and put on these, like, you know, this is it. You know, this line, you know, we go here, no further. You know, right. that kind of thing. <laughs> right. It's just like, and it's just like, why can't we just like, why can't you like Batman and not like Superman and that be okay and not have to have Superman kicking Batman's ass? I mean, or Batman kicking Superman's ass or whatever. The two shouldn't be fighting, period. Right. So, but I'll get off my soapbox on that. No, I I love it when you get on your soapbox, (laughs) dude. Preach it, brother. No, I agree with you. No, I... uh, This is the sum result of four years of me going, it's got to get better, and then realizing it's not. (laughs) No, it's it's not, sadly. It's it's really not. You know, I since uh, since seeing it brand new in the theater, um, I I rewatched... Uh, last night with the family, we rewatched the Lego movie, uh, which we have had on Blu-ray since Christmas because we got it on <laughs> one of those doorbuster deals at Christmas, but we never even cracked it open. So we cracked it open, watched it last night. God, I love that movie. Darkness. But, but the one thing that bothers me in that is even that, as, as fun as it is, carries over this damn thing with, with Batman and Superman because Superman is such a pussy in that oh, movie, and it have just you seen the how it should have ended? Yeah, that? yeah, I did, I did, and I loved it. Yeah, <laughs> hitting everybody with heat vision, releasing them, and saving the day, which is how it should happen. That should, yeah, totally. And and totally. that Batman is getting a movie. Yeah, I heard about that. So uh. and, and and okay, so we li- and 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 it it may sound to some people like Scott and I are butt hurt. About the fact that Batman is as popular as he is. Uh, it, it's not so much that. It's that 
he's popular, but it's not for any dis- like like good reason. Essentially, <laughs> you know, it's like he's the most popular because DC has done the most with him. Like for whatever reason, in in terms of comics, they can cancel fifty books, and to be fair, they canceled a couple Bat books. But for a while there in the new 52, they would cancel like three titles and start up a new Batman title almost immediately. And it's just like, really? And I guess they're selling because they wouldn't be putting out that many books. But at the same time, I just think you're, 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 you're oversaturating it to the point where at some point this gravy train is going to stop. And we may see that next year. Mm-hmm. Honestly. You know, I'm going to give the movie a fair shake, but I I am not as excited as I was when you, Chris, and I talked about it a couple months ago. Uh, you know that 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 trailer really put me off, and I, I spent about an hour about last night talking about this on Radio KAL. But still, it was just like it, it's not like let's go going back to something and bringing old creators on it is never the solution because when old creators come back on a property like 10, 15, 20 years later, it's never as good. I'm sorry. There there are very rare times, but I would like a more balanced look at the character instead of him constantly just being the guy that kicks everybody's ass. So maybe, maybe I'm just weird. I wouldn't mind it so much if if superman got his due as well mhm because there was a time when they they kind of stood together you know they kind of stood toe to toe on the stands in, in my opinion that was one of the things that made giving up the bat books you know that kind of softened the blow was that i still had superman and that Superman was at, at that time in the '90s going strong. You know, it was it was a, a fun universe to be engaged in, and so Superman was always there. And he didn't at that time feel overpowered or, or that he was playing second fiddle to Batman. Now I feel like he's playing second fiddle to Batman, Green Lantern, The Flash, Green Arrow, just about every other hero in the DC universe. And that's what really pains me because Superman should be front and center. He should be the guy. And and then everybody stands behind him. And I wouldn't even mind it if it was Batman and Superman together and then everybody stood behind them. But... You know, to have him so far in the background and have Batman now be the face of DC Comics, that that is bothersome to me on so many levels, especially when it's this particular Batman, when it's, you know, the, the, the very dark uh, version of Batman. I, I just, you know, I don't know what message that sends. But anyway... <laughs> Next time around, I am super excited for next episode because, again, we are back to Crisis on Infinite Earths coverage. We are going to be looking at Crisis on Infinite Earths number four. You've reached the end to another amazing episode of Tales of the Justice Society of America. 
You can find this show as well as an entire slew of other awesome podcasts on a wide variety of geek-related subjects from giant monsters to time lords to movie commentaries to fangirl interests at www.twotruefreaks.com. There you can hear Scott on such shows as Star Wars Monthly Monday, Star Trek Monthly Monday, Comics Monthly Monday, and occasionally Back to the Bins. Mike is on Comics Monthly Monday as well as hosting or co-hosting a few shows himself, like Views from the Long Box, which can be found at www.viewsfromthelongbox.com, and From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which can be found at www.fortressofbailytube.com. Scott and Mike have gigantic egos. They love to hear themselves talk. More importantly, at least according to their publicist, they want to hear from you, so you can reach the guys by writing to talesofthejsa at gmail.com. Would you like to sponsor an episode of this or any other of your favorite Two True Freaks network shows? Simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com. Click the PayPal link, donate any amount at all, tell us which show you're choosing and what message, if any, you'd like us to read on your behalf, and you will be an official sponsor of that show's very next episode. With your message read in the show's opener, it's that easy, and there is no minimum donation. Be a show sponsor today. You can also support this show and the Two True Freaks Network as a whole when you shop on Amazon. Again, simply head on over to www.twotruefreaks.com and click on the Amazon link. There is no additional charge to your purchase, and a portion of that will get kicked to the network. Welcome to Amazon. I love you. Thank you for listening, and come back next time for another exciting episode of the Tales of the Justice Society of America. 